Chapter 3 of Frostiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ice. The blasted groves their verdant pride resign, and waters hardened into crystal shine. Even the proud seas forget in tides to roll beneath the freezing of the northern pole. There waves on waves in solid mountains rise, and alps of ice invade the wandering skies. Broom. Ice is a brittle, transparent body, formed of some fluid frozen or fixed by cold. See chapter 1, Frost. The specific gravity of ice to water is various, according to the nature and circumstances of the water, degrees of cold, etc. The rarefaction of ice is supposed to be owing to the air bubbles produced in it while freezing. These, being considerably large in proportion to the water frozen, render the ice so much specifically lighter. It is well known that a considerable quantity of air is lodged in the interstices of water, though it has there little or no elastic property, on account of the disunion of its particles. But upon these particles coming closer together and uniting as the water freezes, light, expansive and elastic air bubbles are thus generated, and increase in bulk as the cold grows stronger, and by their elastic force burst to pieces any vessel in which the water is closely contained. But snow water, or any water long boiled over the fire, affords an ice more solid and with fewer bubbles. Pure water, long kept in vacuo and frozen afterwards there, freezes much sooner on being exposed to the same degree of cold than water unpurged of its air and set in the open atmosphere. And the ice made of water thus divested of air is much harder, more solid and transparent, and heavier than common ice. Ice Hills Ice hills are a sort of structure or contrivance common upon the river Neva at Petersburg, and which afford a perpetual fund of amusement to the populace. They are constructed in the following manner. A scaffolding is raised upon the river about 30 feet in height, with a landing place at the top, the ascent to which is by a ladder. From this summit, a sloping plain of boards, about 4 yards broad and 30 long, descends to the superficies of the river. It is supported by strong poles gradually decreasing in height, and its sides are defended by a parapet of planks. Upon these boards are laid square masses of ice about four inches thick, which being first smoothed with the axe and laid close to each other, are then sprinkled with water. By these means they coalesce, and, adhering to the boards, immediately form an inclined plane of pure ice. From the bottom of this plane the snow is cleared away for the length of two hundred yards and the breadth of four, upon the level bed of the river, and the sides of this course, as well as the sides and top of the scaffolding, are ornamented with firs and pines. Each person, being provided with a sledge, mounts the ladder, and having attained the summit, he seats himself upon his sledge at the upper extremity of the inclined plane, down which he suffers it to glide with considerable rapidity, poising it as he goes down, when the velocity acquired by the ascent carries it above 100 yards upon the level ice of the river. At the end of this course there is usually a similar ice hill, nearly parallel to the former, which begins where the other ends, so that the person immediately mounts again, and in the same manner glides down the other inclined plane of ice. This diversion he repeats as often as he pleases. The boys also are continually employed in skating down these hills. They glide chiefly upon one skate, as they are able to poise themselves better upon one leg than upon two. These ice hills exhibit a pleasing appearance upon the river, as well from the trees with which they are ornamented, as from the moving objects which at particular times of the day are descending without intermission. Icebergs Icebergs are large bodies of ice filling the valleys between the high mountains in northern latitudes. 
Among the most remarkable are those of the east coast of Spitsbergen. They are seven in number, but at considerable distances from each other. Each fills the valleys for tracts unknown, in a region totally inaccessible in the internal parts. The glaciers of Switzerland, see Glaciers, page 62, seems contemptible to these, but present a similar front into some lower valley. The last exhibits over the sea a front 300 feet high, emulating the emerald in colour, cataracts of melted snow precipitate down various parts, and black spiring mountains streaked with white bound the sides and rise crag above crag as far as the eye can reach in the background. At times immense fragments break off and tumble into the water with a most alarming dashing. In Phipps' voyage to the North Pole, page 70, we are told, a piece of this vivid green substance has fallen and grounded in 24 fathoms water and spired above the surface 50 feet. Similar icebergs are frequent in all the Arctic regions, and to their lapses is owing the solid mountainous ice which infests those seas. Frost sports wonderfully with these icebergs and gives them majestic as well as other most singular forms. Masses have been seen assuming the shape of a Gothic church with arched windows and doors, and all the rich drapery of that style, composed to what an Arabian tale would scarcely dare to relate. Of crystal of the richest sapphirine blue, tables with one or more feet, and often immense flat-roofed temples, like those of Luxor on the Nile, supported by round transparent columns of cerulean hue, float by the astonished spectator. These icebergs are the creation of ages, and receive annually additional height by the falling of snows and of rain, which often instantly freezes, and more than repairs the loss occasioned by the influence of the melting sun. Thompson has a magnificent description of these icy regions, the muse thence sweeps the howling margin of the main, where, undissolving from the first of time, snows swell on snows amazing to the sky, and icy mountains high on mountains piled seem to the shivering sailor from afar, shapeless and white, an atmosphere of clouds, projected huge and horrid o'er the surge, Alps frown on Alps, or rushing hideous down, as if old chaos was again returned. Wide rend the deep and shake the solid pole, ocean itself no longer can resist the binding fury but in all its rage of tempest taken by the boundless frost is many a fathom to the bottom chained and bid to roar no more a bleak expanse shagged o'er with wavy rocks cheerless and void of every life that from the dreary months flies conscious southward miserable they who here entangled in the gathering ice take their last look of the descending sun while full of death and fierce with tenfold frost the long, long night incumbent o'er their heads falls horrible. Such was the Britons' fate, as with first prow, what have not Britons dared. He for the passage sought, attempted since so much in vain, and seeming to be shut by jealous nature with eternal bars, in these fell regions in Arzina court, and to the stony deep his idle ship immediately sealed, he with his hapless crew, each full exerted at his several task, froze into statues, to the cordage glued the sailor, and the pilot to the helm. Ice Islands These are composed of a great quantity of ice collected into one huge solid mass and floating about upon the seas near or within the polar circles. Many of these fluctuating islands are met with on the coasts of Spitsbergen to the great danger of the shipping employed in the Greenland fishery. In the midst of those tremendous masses, navigators have been arrested and frozen to death, in this manner the brave Sir Hugh Willoughby perished with all his crew in 1553, 
and in the year 1773, Lord Mulgrave, after every effort which the most finished seaman could make to accomplish the end of his voyage, was caught in the ice, and was near experiencing the same unhappy fate. See the account at large in Phipps' voyage to the North Pole. As there described, the scene, divested of the horror from the eventful expectation of change, was the most beautiful and picturesque. Two large ships becalmed in a vast basin surrounded on all sides by islands of various forms, the weather clear, the sun gilding the circumambient ice, which was low, smooth, and even, covered with snow, excepting where the pools of water on part of the surface appeared crystalline with the young ice. The small space of sea they were confined to, perfectly smooth. After fruitless attempts to force a way through the fields of ice, their limits were perpetually contracted by its closing, till at length it beset each vessel till they became immovably fixed. The smooth extent of surface was soon lost. The pressure of the pieces of ice, by the violence of the swell, caused them to pack. Fragment rose upon fragment, till they were in many places higher than the main yard. The movements of the ships were tremendous and involuntary, in conjunction with the surrounding ice, actuated by the currents. The water shoaled to fourteen fathoms. The grounding of the ice, or of the ships, would have been equally fatal. The force of the ice might have crushed them to atoms, or have lifted them out of the water, and overset them or have left them suspended on the summits of the pieces of ice at a tremendous height, exposed to the fury of the winds, or to the risk of being dashed to pieces by the failure of their frozen dock. An attempt was made to cut a passage through the ice. After a perseverance worthy of Britons, it proved fruitless. The commander, at all times master of himself, directed the boats to be made ready to be hauled over the ice till they arrived at navigable water, a task alone of seven days and in them to make their voyage to England. The boats were drawn progressively three whole days. At length a wind sprung up, the ice separated sufficiently to yield to the pressure of the full-sailed ships, which, after labouring against the resisting fields of ice, arrived on the 10th of August in the harbour of Smearingburg, in the west end of Spitsbergen, between it and Hacklite's headland. Blink of the Ice the forms assumed by the ice in this chilling climate are extremely pleasing to even the most incurious eye. The surface of that which is congealed from the sea-water, for we must allow it two origins, is flat and even, hard, opaque, resembling white sugar, and incapable of being slid on like the British ice. The greater pieces, or fields, are many leagues in length, the lesser are the meadows of the seals, on which those animals at times frolic by hundreds. The motion of the lesser pieces is as rapid as the currents, the greater, which are sometimes two hundred leagues long and sixty or eighty broad, move slowly and majestically, often fix for a time, immovable by the power of the ocean, and then produce near the horizon that bright white appearance called the blink. The approximation of two great fields produces a most singular phenomenon. It forces the lesser, if the term can be applied to pieces of several acres square, out of the water, and adds them to their surface. A second, and often a third, succeeds, so that the whole forms an aggregate of a tremendous height. These float in the sea like so many rugged mountains, and are sometimes five hundred or six hundred yards thick, but the far greater part is concealed beneath the water. These are continually increased in height by the freezing of the spray of the sea, or of the meltings of the snow which falls on them. Those which remain in this frozen climate receive continual growth, Others are gradually wafted by the northern winds into southern latitudes, and melt by degrees of the heat of the sun, till they waste away or disappear in the boundless element. The collision of the great fields of ice at high latitudes is often attended with a noise that for a time takes away the sense of hearing anything else, and the lesser with a grinding of unspeakable horror. 
the water which dashes against the mountainous ice freezes into an infinite variety of forms and gives the voyager ideal towns, streets, churches, steeples, and every shape which imagination can frame. Union of Sugar and Ice by the Agency of Fire In the winter of 1799, says M. Acherby, I beheld at Stockholm a spectacle of a very uncommon nature, and such as I never, in all probability, shall see a second time. It was a sugar house on fire in the suburb on the south of the city. The accident being announced by the discharge of cannon, all the fire engines were immediately hurried to the aid of the owners. The severity of that winter was so great that there was not a single spot near where the water was not frozen to the depth of a yard from the surface. It was necessary to break the ice with hatchets and hammers and to draw up the water as from a well. Immediately on filling the casks, they were obliged to carry them off with all possessable speed, lest the water should be congealed, as in fact about a third part of it was by the time it could be brought to the place where it was wanted. In order to prevent it as much as possible from freezing, they constantly kept stirring it about with a stick, but even this operation had only a partial effect. At last, by the united power of many engines, which launched forth a great mass of water, the fire was got under, after destroying only the roof, the house itself being very little damaged. It was in the upper stories of the building that the stock of sugar was deposited. There were also many vessels full of treacle, which being broken by the falling in of the roof, the juices ran down along the sides of the walls. The water, thrown up to the top of the house by the engines, and flowing back on the walls, staircases, and through the windows, was stopped in its downward course by the mighty power of the frost. After the fire was extinguished, the engines continued for some time to play, and the water they discharged was frozen almost the instant it came in contact with the walls already covered in ice. Thus a house was formed of the most extraordinary appearance that it is possible to conceive. It was so curious an object that everybody came to gaze at it as something wonderful. The whole building from top to bottom was incrustated with a thick coat of ice. The doors and windows were closed up, and in order to gain admission it was necessary with hammers and hatchets to open a passage. They were obliged to cut through the ice another staircase for the purpose of ascending to the upper stories. All the rooms and what remained of the roof were embellished by long stalactites of multifarious shapes and of a yellowish colour composed of the treacle and congealed water. This building, contemplated in the light of the sun, seemed to bear some analogy to those diamond castles that are raised by the imaginations of poets. It remained upwards of two months in the same state and was visited by all the curious. The children in particular had excellent amusement with it, and contributed not a little to the destruction of the enchanted palace by searching for the particles of sugar, which were found in many places incorporated with the ice. Glaciers If any person, says Mr. Cox, could be conveyed to such an elevation as to embrace at one view the Alps of Switzerland, Savoy, and Dauphine, he would behold a vast chain of mountains, intersected by numerous valleys, and composed of many parallel chains, the highest occupying the centre, and the others gradually diminishing in proportion to their distance from that centre. The most elevated or central chain would appear bristled with pointed rocks, and covered, even in summer, with ice and snow in all parts that are not absolutely perpendicular. On each side of this chain he would discover deep valleys clothed with verdure, peopled with numerous villages, and watered by many rivers. In considering these objects with greater attention, he would remark that the central chain is composed of elevated peaks and diverging ridges whose summits are overspread with snow, that the declivities of the peaks and ridges, excepting those parts that are extremely steep, are covered with snow and ice, 
and that the intermediate depths and spaces between them are filled with immense fields of ice, terminating in those cultivated valleys which border the great chain. The branches most contiguous to the central chain would present the same phenomena, only in a less degree. At greater distances no ice would be observed, and scarcely any snow, but upon some of the most elevated summits, and the mountains, diminishing in height and ruggedness, would appear covered with herbage, and gradually sink into hills and plains. In this general survey the glaciers may be divided into two sorts, the first occupying the deep valleys situated in the bosom of the Alps and termed by the natives Valley of Ice, but which I shall distinguish by the name of Lower Glaciers. The second, which close the summits and sides of the mountains, I shall call Upper Glaciers. 1. The Lower Glaciers are by far the most considerable in extent and depth. Some stretch several leagues in length. That of Dubois in particular is more than 15 miles long and above 3 in its greatest breadth. The lower glaciers do not, as is generally imagined, communicate with each other, and but few of them are parallel to the central chain. They mostly stretch in a transverse direction, are bordered at the higher extremity by inaccessible rocks, and on the other extend into cultivated valleys. The thickness of the ice varies in different parts. M. de Saussure found its general depth in the glacier des Bois from 80 to 100 feet, but questions not the information of those who assert that in some places its thickness exceed even 600 feet. These immense fields of ice usually rest on an inclined plane. Being pushed forward by pressure of their own weight, and but weakly supported by the rugged rocks beneath, they are intersected by large transverse chasms, and present the appearance of walls, pyramids, and other fantastic shapes, observed at all heights, and in all situations, wherever the declivity exceeds 30 or 40 degrees. But in those parts where the plane on which they rest is horizontal or only gently inclined, the surface of the ice is nearly uniform, the chasms are but few and narrow, and the traveller crosses on foot without much difficulty. The surface of the ice is not so slippery as that of frozen ponds or rivers. It is rough and granulated, and is only dangerous to the passenger in deep descents. It is not transparent, is extremely porous and full of small bubbles, which seldom exceed the size of a pea, and consequently is not so compact as common ice. Its perfect resemblance to the congelation of snow impregnated with water and its opacity, roughness, and in the number and smallness of the air bubbles, led M. de Saussure to conceive the following simple and natural theory on the formation of glaciers. An immense quantity of snow is continually accumulating in the elevated valleys which are enclosed within the Alps, as well from that which falls from the clouds during nine months in the year, as from the masses which are incessantly rolling from the steep sides of the circumjacent mountains. Part of this snow which is not dissolved during summer, impregnated with rain and snow water, is frozen during winter, and forms that opaque and porous ice of which the lower glaciers are composed. 2. The upper glaciers may be subdivided into those which cover the summits, and those which extend along the sides of the Alps. Those which cover the summits of the Alps owe their origin to the snow that falls at all seasons of the year, and which remains nearly in its original state, being congealed into a hard substance and not converted into ice. For although, according to the opinion of some philosophers, the summit of Mont Blanc and of other elevated mountains is, from the glistening of the surface, supposed to be covered with pure ice, yet it appears, both from theory and experience, that it is not ice but snow, for in so elevated and cold a region there cannot be melted a quantity of snow sufficient to impregnate with water the whole mass which remains undissolved. Experience also justifies this reasoning. M. de Saussure found the top of Mont Blanc only encrusted with ice, which, though of a firm consistence, was yet penetrable with a stick, and on the declivities of the summit he discovered beneath the surface a soft snow without coherence. 
The substance which clothes the side of the Alps is neither pure snow like that of the summits, nor ice which forms the lower glaciers, but is an assemblage of both. It contains less snow than the summits, because the summer heat has more power to dissolve it, and because, the liquefied snow descending from above, the mass is penetrated with a larger quantity of water. It contains more snow than the lower glaciers, because the dissolution of the snow is comparatively less. Hence the ice is even more porous, opaque, and less compact than the ice of the lower glaciers, and is of so doubtful a texture as renders it in many parts difficult to decide whether it may be called ice or frozen snow. In a word, there is a regular gradation from the snow on the summits to the ice of the lower glaciers, formed by the intermediate mixture of snow and ice, which becomes more compact and less porous in proportion as it approaches the lower glaciers, until it unites and assimilates with them. And it is evident that the greater or lesser degree of density is derived from the greater or lesser quantity of water with which the mass is impregnated. An Icy Epitaph a curious record of an accident occasioned by a downfall of ice is to be found as an epitaph on the son of the then parish clerk at Bampton in Devonshire, who was killed by an icicle falling upon and fracturing his skull. In memory of the clerk's son. Bless my eye, 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 here I lies in a sad pickle killed by icicle. In the year of Anno Domini 1776. How to make ice. In many countries, the warmth of the climate renders ice not only a desirable, but even a necessary article. Hence it becomes an object of some importance to procure it in a cheap and easy manner. For this purpose, in the East Indies, three or four pits are dug on a large open plain, each of which is about 30 feet square and 2 feet deep. The bottoms are covered to the depth of 8 or 10 inches with dried straw, or the stems of sugar canes. On this bed are arranged, in rows, a number of unglazed pans made of porous earth, about a quarter of an inch thick, and an inch and a quarter deep, which are filled about sunset with water that has been boiled and become cool. Early in the morning a coat of ice is found on the pans, which is broken by striking an iron hook into its centre, and then conveyed in baskets to the place of preservation. The most expeditious method, however, of producing ice consists in a combination of sal ammoniac with nitre. It was first discovered by Borhove, whose experiments were repeated and confirmed by Mr. Walker, apothecary to the Radcliffe Infirmary, Oxford, but he found that his thermometer sunk 32 degrees in a solution of sal ammoniac, when Borhove's fell only 28 degrees. Nitre alone reduced it to 19 degrees. On mixing the two salts in equal proportions, the power of generating cold was considerably increased, so that the water was cooled to 22 degrees, while the thermometer stood at 47 degrees in the open air. By adding some powder of the same composition and immersing in the mixture two small phials filled with water, he found it in a short time frozen. Having observed that Glauber's salt, when it retains the water of crystallization, produces cold in a state of solution, Mr. Walker made an experiment of its effects when mixed with the other salts before mentioned, in consequence of which the thermometer sunk from 69 degrees to 19 degrees and he obtained ice, while the thermometer stood as high as 70 degrees. Lastly, by previously immersing the salts in the water of one mixture and then making another of the cooled materials, he was able to sink the mercury in the thermometer to 64 degrees. Thus he froze a mixture of spirit of wine and water, in the proportion of seven of the latter to one of the former, and by adding a quantity of the cooled materials to the mixture in which this was frozen, the quicksilver fell to the extraordinary depth of 69 degrees. Various other methods of procuring artificial ice have been contrived, particularly by the aid of ether, 
but that volatile spirit is too expensive for domestic purposes, and a satisfactory account of the process would exceed our limits. How to make ice cream. Ice cream is prepared by mixing three parts of cream with one part of the juice or jam of raspberries, currants, etc. The mixture is then well beaten, and after being strained through a cloth, is poured into a pewter mould or vessel, adding a small quantity of lemon juice. The mould is now covered and plunged in a pail about two-thirds full of ice, into which two handfuls of salt should be previously scattered. The vessel containing the cream is then briskly agitated for eight or ten minutes, after which it is suffered to stand for a similar space of time. The agitation is then repeated, and the cream allowed to subside for half an hour, when it is taken out of the mould and sent to table. A palace built of ice. In the year 1740, the Empress Anne of Russia caused a palace of ice to be erected upon the banks of Neva. This extraordinary edifice was 52 feet in length, 16 in breadth and 20 feet high, and constructed of large pieces of ice cut in the manner of freestone. The walls were three feet thick. The several apartments were furnished with tables, chairs, beds, and all kinds of household furniture of ice. In front of this edifice, besides pyramids and statues, stood six cannon carrying balls of six pounds weight, and two mortars entirely made of ice. As a trial from one of the former, an iron ball with only a quarter of a pound of powder was fired off, the ball of which went through a two-inch board at sixty paces from the mouth of the piece, which remained completely uninjured by the explosion. The illumination in this palace at night was astonishingly grand. Hamburg Ice Boat the body of this boat consists of wickerwork covered with leather to render it impermeable by water, and is remarkably light that it may be easily managed by one person, both on the ice and in the water. Its length, measured on the outside, is seven and a half feet in the keel, and twelve feet above from end to end. Its breadth, three feet at the bottom, and four at the upper part. The bottom of the boat is shod with two small pieces of iron, and by means of two hooks the boat may, with the greatest facility, be slided over the ice. In the lower part or body of the vessel there is a large opening, three feet long and fifteen inches wide, the four sides of which are secured by a framework to prevent the water from entering the vessel. Through this opening also the boatman is enabled to step upon the ice in those places where it is too uneven to admit the sliding of the boat and to carry it by means of handles. Another advantage derived from this aperture in the middle of the boat is the counterpoise which a column of water in its centre produces and thus prevents it from being overset, while the man who carried it over the ice immediately raises himself above the level of the water and sits down in the vessel. But, in order to approach nearer to the person whose life is endangered, there is also employed a ladder with a long jointed handle, which is pushed forward and held by another assistant standing on the firm ice. On this ladder the boatman places himself, and advances as near as possible to the body immersed in the water. Having successfully extracted it, no time should be lost in laying it in a proper posture in the boat, for which purpose there is a kind of chair with an elevated back on the stern of the boat. Mr. Gunter, one of the most active members of the Hamburg Society for the Encouragement of the Arts and Useful Trades, informs us in the third volume of their Transactions, published in 1795, that he has often been present when unfortunate persons have been rescued from untimely death by means of the ice boat, and that the swiftness and dexterity with which this machine may be managed by expert assistance is almost incredible. Hence the vessel is not entrusted to any other but skilful hands, and during summer it is deposited in an airy place, and the leather preserved from becoming either too dry or mouldy. The whole of this useful apparatus costs only 150 marks currency, or about 10 pounds sterling, a sum so insignificant that while the city of Hamburg has built five such ice boats, 
the great city of London ought to be in possession of at least a hundred. To render assistance to persons in danger of drowning. This desirable object appears attainable by the proper use of a man's hat and pocket handkerchief, which being all the apparatus necessary, is to be used thus. Spread the handkerchief on the ground, and place a hat with the brim downwards on the middle of the handkerchief, and then tie the handkerchief round the hat as you would tie up a bundle, keeping the knots as near the centre of the crown as may be. Now, by seizing the knots in one hand, and keeping the opening of the hat upwards, a person, without knowing how to swim, may fearlessly plunge into the water with what may be necessary to save the life of a fellow creature. If a person should fall out of a boat, or the boat upset by going foul of a cable, etc., or should he fall off the keys, or indeed fall into any water from which he could not extricate himself, but must wait some little time for assistance, had he presence of mind enough to whip off his hat and hold it by the brim, placing his fingers within side the crown, and hold it so, top downwards, he would be able by this method to keep his mouth well above water till assistance should reach him. It often happens that danger is descried long before we are involved in the peril, and time enough to prepare the above method, and a courageous person would, in seven instances out of ten, apply to them with success, and travellers in fording rivers at unknown fords, or where shallows are deceitful, might make use of these methods with advantage. To recover persons apparently drowned, as recommended by the Humane Society. Let those who first discover an unfortunate object in this situation remove it to some house near, place it by the fire, and begin rubbing it with salt, volatiles, etc., and warm flannels. The head a little elevated, never attempting giving anything by the mouth till signs of recovery strongly appear, and let the person be kept from the crowd of people around him. The idea that the stomach is full of water, and thus obviates recovery, is very erroneous and prejudicial, as it is now fully and clearly established that the respiration being impeded is the sole cause of the suspension of life, and which, being restored, the vital functions soon recover their tone, and men are frequently lost from the absurd custom of rolling on casks, lifting the feet over the shoulders and the head falling on the ground. Construction of an ice house. An ice house is a repository for the preservation of ice during the summer months. The situation of an ice house ought to be towards the southeast, on account of the advantage of the morning sun in expelling the damp air, which is far more prejudicial to it than warmth. The best soil on which a house can be erected is a chalk hill or declivity, as it will conduct the wastewater without the aid of any artificial drain, but where such land cannot be procured, a loose stony earth or a gravelly soil on a descent is preferable to any other. For the construction of an ice house, a spot should be selected at a convenient distance from the dwelling house. A cavity is then to be dug in the form of an inverted cone, the bottom being concave, so as to form a reservoir for the reception of wastewater. Should the soil render it necessary to construct a drain, it will be advisable to extend it to a considerable length, or at least so far as to open at the side of the hill or declivity, or into a well. An air trap should likewise be formed in the drain, by sinking the latter so much lower in that opening as it is high, and by fixing a partition from the top for the depth of an inch or two into the water of the drain, by which means the air will be completely excluded from the well. A sufficient number of brick piers must now be formed in the sides of the ice house for the support of a cartwheel, which should be laid with its convex side upwards for the purpose of receiving the ice, and which ought to be covered with hurdles and straw to afford a drain for the melted ice. The sides and dome of the cone should be about nine inches thick, the former being constructed of steered brickwork, that is, without mortar, and with the bricks placed at right angles to the face of the work. The vacant space behind ought to be filled up with gravel or loose stones, 
in order that the water oozing through the sides may the more easily be conducted into the well. The doors of the ice house should likewise be so formed as to shut closely, and bundles of straw ought always to be placed before the inner door, for the more effectual exclusion of air. The ice to be deposited in this building should be collected during the frost, broken into small pieces, and properly rammed down in strata of about one foot thick, so that it may become one complete body. In those seasons when sufficient quantities of ice cannot be procured, snow may be substituted and preserved in a singular manner. Morse Catching on the Ice The Russians who go out to catch the morse are hired for that purpose by a master or ship owner, who not only furnishes them with the necessary vessels, but fits them out with provisions, stores, and whatever they are likely to want on the voyage, but either agrees to give them a share of what they take, or pays them certain wages. The latter, however, seldom exceed five or ten roubles for the summer, a trifling sum when we consider the hardships, toils, and dangers attending this profession. The morse catchers usually take with them a year's provisions, as they are often obliged to pass the winter on board their ships. Every vessel has an oven for baking bread and cooking their victuals, for the supply of which they take the needful stock of wood. The only drink they carry out with them is water, with which when they go on shore they prepare quass. The time of departure varies according to circumstances. Some set out at the beginning of summer, when the white sea is free from ice, others not till autumn, especially if they intend to winter on the voyage. The greatest peril to which they are exposed at sea is that of being hemmed in by the driving masses of ice. In this case, the ice by its force beats in the sides of the vessel, and the morse catchers are then reduced to the dreadful alternative either of being buried in the waves on the spot, or of getting on the fields of ice floating at the mercy of the winds, till cold and hunger put an end to their sufferings. And yet it has happened, though very rarely, that some of these poor fellows have been brought alive to land on their flakes of ice. When the morse catchers are happily arrived at the place of their destination, the first thing they do is conduct their vessels to some safe anchorage where they generally find several little huts that have been constructed by their predecessors in this hazardous warfare, and then commit themselves to the small boats, of which every vessel takes with it one or two, to proceed to the conflict with the beasts of the ocean. This is usually done on the first fine day, because then the morses delight in going on land or on the ice to repose, and besides they are at times stimulated to leave their native element for a length of time for the purposes of copulation which business lasts with these monsters for a month or two, or to cast their young, or to rescue themselves from the bites of the sea lice, by which the morse in summer is perpetually tormented, and from which they have no other means of escaping than by fleeing into an element which deprives these insects of life. All these causes together collect them frequently on the beach or fields of ice in prodigious numbers. When the captors discover one of these multitudes, they must have the precaution to approach them against the wind, because these animals have so fine a smell that they perceive the approach of men with the wind at great distance, and then immediately take to the water, whereas in the contrary case they continue lying undisturbed, though they even see the boats advancing to them. Besides, the morse catchers by this means have the advantage, discovering sooner the place where this prey has couched, for these fat animals, especially in summer, emit far round them a horrid stench. When the captors have reached this formidable encampment, they immediately quit their carbuses or boats, armed with nothing but their pikes, cut off the way to the sea from the morses, and then pierce those animals which come first to save themselves in the water. As it is the way with the morses to scramble over one another in their attempts to escape, from the numbers of the slain there soon arises a bulwark, which effectually chokes up the passage to the living, and then the captors proceed with the slaughter till they have left not one alive. 
It sometimes happens that after such an engagement, so great are the heaps of the dead that the vessels can only contain the heads or the teeth, and the people are obliged to leave the fat or blubber and the skins behind. But, easy as it is for the captives to conquer the morse by land, so dangerous is the conflict with these animals in their own element. We have only to recollect that the morse is commonly of the size of a large ox, and that, besides their sharp teeth, they are provided with two long stout tusks, for judging how a sea fight of this kind is likely to terminate. When any of the morses escape into the water before they can all be killed, the captors leap upon the ice and fall upon the animals with harpoons, which they strive to strike into their breasts or their belly, and to each of which is fastened a long cord. This done, they drive a stake into the ice, wind the other end of the long harpoon string around it, and are now drawn about on the piece of ice on which they stand by the animal till he has lost his strength, when they draw him upon the ice by the cord and kill him outright. But when the morses lie so near to the water that they can leap in ere the attack begins, then the captors fasten the cord, when they have thrown the harpoon, only to the head of the boat, which is then drawn by the huge animals so deep into the water that the sailors must all run immediately astern. The morse, having fruitfully endeavoured to get loose from the cord, rises erect upon the surface of the water and makes a furious attack on his persecutors. In this he is sometimes so successful as to shatter the boat with his tusks, or to throw himself suddenly by a proportionate leap into the midships. Then nothing is left to the crew but to jump overboard and to hold by the gunwale, till other morse hunters come to their assistance in this desperate situation. To mitigate the danger of these misfortunes, the captors not only previously take all proper measures, but it is even laid down by laws and regulations what conduct everyone is to observe during the voyage and in the actual encounter with the morses. Each of these companies consists generally of a master or pilot, two harpooners, two barreling people, a steersman, and several rowers, each of whom has his appointed duty. End of chapter 3 Recording by Lewis Fletcher